Hi everyone, welcome to the episode 35 of Anshism. Today on the podcast we have Dr. Alicia Danielson, who is today going to question the norms of marriage. She's going to talk about the historical perspective of us as human beings and what are the societal norms of marriage. Welcome to the podcast, Alicia. How are you doing? And tell us a bit about yourself. Um yeah, thanks for the introduction. So yeah, I'm uh, Dr. Alicia Danielson. I'm an assistant teaching professor at the University of Bolton. Um, my particular research interests and expertise are in the areas of human rights law, international law, jurisprudence, which is the philosophy of law, um, yeah, legal research methods, comparative law, EU law, etc. There's a lot, sorry. <laughs> but they all do interlink. Um, yeah, probably the most important thing in this sense to say is that I am not married. <laughs> Uh, out of conviction. Um, it, that's not to say that I'm not in a committed, stable, very happy relationship. But as you said, I have my own views and I feel like it's my personal circumstance, my personal business. And I don't think laws, governments should tell me how I should be living my life. It should 100%. be a personal choice. 100%. I absolutely agree with the with that bit. Uh but what's your perception about marriage and do you feel that it's a societal norm? Definitely, definitely. Um okay, so yeah, definitely a societal social norm. Um I can look back to early childhood, um kindergarten years, school years, um you just kept pretending to get married it was one of the main games you'd be playing mother father children playing house and the whole ceremony of marriage was uh uh yeah it was a big deal i mean i don't know how many times my brother had to marry me to my sister or i married my siblings <laughs> it was just one of those things and how did you get it of course because everyone around you adults are all married you watch television and it's all about you know the happy ending is always marriage <laughs> prince charming meets poor princess and she finally achieves her goal in life which is the i do's and they lived happily ever after and so on it's it's everywhere it, it's a market it, you know jewelry clothes the parties cakes it is a huge social celebration that feeds in from a very young age you just assume this is what's meant to be that is that is absolutely true because i remember someone telling me that marriage is not an achievement you know <laughs> staying married maybe <laughs> <laughs> yeah well yeah i think most of the people do stay married um you know well you know people do face problems in any relationship whether it be husband wife boyfriend girlfriend or you know any 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 other relationship brother sister you know siblings so what what so i know that you feel that it's a societal norm but don't you think it's important to get married like to settle down and you know just asking a question you know i was going to say i'm going to sort of steal that question and go off a bit on my general vent which is i think why you invited me here anyway because uh, <laughs> for, for those listening um i had this conversation with anch on a train recently <laughs> and uh shortly afterwards i was invited to join today Three so um, ago. yeah so i have quite strong views on marriage 
not on committing to other people, but the concept of marriage itself. So I am going to maybe steal a little bit of time and go That's through okay. some of the key reasons. Um, because in, in essence, marriage as we're finding it today is very outdated. It doesn't reflect what society needs anymore. And I will give a few examples and I will look at it historically, economically, then legally, of course, which is my um, area of expertise to demonstrate how law, uh, how law and the way it deals with marriage and marriage itself has lost its purpose and function in society and evolutionary, um, it should not really exist in its current state anymore. So I hope yeah. that's okay. Yeah. And as I said, I would start historically. So, well, if we look at some of our closest relatives, the other primates, um, we see that probably as early as 75 million years ago, um, our ancestors were solitary and preferred actually to live in isolation. We, we didn't like other people of our species being around us. So actually, um, yeah, the humanoid forefathers would only actually come together to mate. Um, also looking back to our very early history, um, we hear a lot about the whole hunter-gatherers societies, men being usually the hunters, women gatherers, as it's often depicted, that actually these sort of societies were more nomadic societies. And within that nomadic society concept, there was no such thing as property per se. People lived together as a community um, and the same applied, or it is, it is assumed the same applied without time machines, we can't really prove it. But we assume that it was more um, polygamous. There was no concept of one man and one woman staying together. Everyone was one community. It was only about 10,000 years ago, roughly, that um, agricultural communities started to develop. So people started to settle. They wouldn't hunt and gather anymore. They actually started to um, domesticate plants, animals, and so on. And so by establishing domesticity, families and larger groups were able to build communities, and that way they transitioned from a nomadic hunter-gatherer lifestyle that was dependent on foraging and hunting for survival to settled communities. And an evolution that came about from this was a concept of property. My property, my house, my animals. And of course, within that, you want to be able to pass on your property to your offspring. How do you do this? Of course, with my wife. <laughs> Yeah. The, the woman who creates children that are definitely mine. We note that, you know, paternity was not as easily established back in those days. So this whole concept, the, the monogamous relationship derived from this sort of notion that we need to establish paternity. I've also seen there are some other theories about that look at the involvement of STDs within the concept as well because they say, of course, the larger community, the higher the prevalence of STDs. And again, if we're looking back thousands of years, medical treatments weren't as accurate as they are today either. So of course, the preventative measure to try and stop the spread would have also been to limit the amount of sexual partners. Hence again, feeding into this monogamous ideal. So we're seeing it's not really 
a biological basis it's more of a social basis historically yeah now if we move though from that towards an economic idea that sort of also feeds in they're connected so um marriage has been criticized for its complicity of wives economic dependence on husbands due to the gender division of labor and that women's work typically pays less than men's work so women are more likely to downgrade or drop out of their careers to assist in child rearing um, or when their career conflicts with their husbands and absent a career women become dependent on legally granted marriage benefits as a husband's health insurance for instance but actually the root of this criticism actually can be found in an economic basis so um i don't know if some of the listeners may have heard of the model or principle of comparative advantage i have heard of it but yeah. i don't exactly but- Yeah. It's fine. Yes. So this was developed um by David Ricardo. Um so this was a classical theory of competitive advantage um in 1817 he came up with this and it was essentially a tool to explain why countries engage in international trade even when one country's workers are more efficient at producing every single good than workers in another country. But the the core of this principle suggests that if you can create something faster and more of than something else and someone else compare comparably can create more of something else it might be more advantageous to specialize in whichever product or goods that you have a comparative advantage in and trade and ultimately you have more of everything so that's like the very rough breakdown of this but you can actually apply this analogously on the concept of the family unit especially historically because of course in the earlier years I don't quite yeah pretty much if we go back beyond this past century everything before was strongly dependent on physical strength within the labor market and although I don't like to generalize but um usually let's face it the general average male is stronger physically than the general average female. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and then there yeah. are of course other biological factors like women breastfeeds even though there are I've heard some cultures where men can too but again the the general norm is women do the breastfeeding males are generally stronger and these sort of biological reasons fed into this idea or this concept where the comparative advantage of working outside of the home was within the scope of male advantage whereas the comparative advantage of taking care of children and household would then have been placed within the realm of women so ultimately this separation of labor will have um resulted in yeah yeah household and uh, what I'll say monetary provisions being most efficiently created for the home the only thing we've now seen in the past century of course is a significant change in the labor market yeah. especially in relation to the 
um, information sector and the services sector is becoming more prevalent in the labor markets, physical strength is no, no, no longer a criteria that determines whether or not um, you'll succeed in the labor market, which of course means that men and women are no longer on different footings because their biological differences make no difference whatsoever. Yeah. So they've actually lost this economic justification for the separation of labor. However, what we still see in marriage is this is still manifested in today's system, most likely due to the societal norms, the, the social traditional values that are placed in it that are still resulting in yeah, everyone getting married. Yeah. Um, yeah, sorry, I know I'm talking and talking. No, no. <laughs> I think uh, what you're giving is an historical perspective of how we were nomads and how we got into this societal issue of having an ego of owning things. Because I read it in history in year 11. Uh, I think it's uh, according to the Buddha, we all had enough for ourselves and then we had a feeling of greed that was developed and that's where the problem started. I was going to say that's beautifully said, yes. Because uh, everyone had enough to eat and everyone had enough to live off but then, uh, you know, ego came in and stuff like that, so. Yeah, exactly. And the, the problem now that we're facing though is something that, as you said, we got into with concepts of property historically are now embedded within law. Yeah. And this brings me, of course, to some of the legal criticisms. So one criticism of marriage is that it, is that it gives the state an undue power and control over the private lives of citizens. Okay. So the statutes governing marriage are drafted by the state and not by the couples who marry under those laws. Yeah. So the laws may at any time be changed by the state without the consent, sometimes even the knowledge of the married people. So the terms derived from the principles of in institutionalized marriage represent the interest of the government, not the spouses. So if I say that maybe in slightly more layman's terms, Whenever someone thinks of legal marriage, or state-sanctioned marriage, as I like to call it, um, you see a contract. You think of it as a contract, but most people will see it as a contract between one spouse and another spouse. We are now contractually a couple, but that's not actually technically how it works. Technically, it's a contract between the couple representing one party together, and the government as the other party to this contract. And this couple is basically agreeing with the government that they can now be viewed as a marital unit. Mm. Which means that family law, all the laws governing marriage are actually the terms and conditions of this contract. And usually the way things work in contract law is that there is you know, privacy of contract. You can determine the rules of your contract yourself. You need to agree to them. They can't be changed unless you agree to them. But in this instance, law can change. The law usually changes, let's face it, on the basis of majority views. And those that are stuck in marriage cannot really have a say. Um, and I know this is probably quite an extreme example, 
But this reminds me quite strongly of some of the circumstances that were seen in the Third Reich in Germany, especially relating to the Jews, where laws mm -hmm. were changed on behalf of Jews. Jews were excluded from different areas of life and it took its own dimension, its own, uh, how would you say, its own evolutionary course. And well, we all know how that ended. So slowly rights were stripped away and there was no way of reclaiming them. And I know this might be slightly ridiculous in terms of an example, but let's say you got married legally yeah. and then family law changed to say, actually, it's not enough just to be married. We want everyone to know you're married. So let's say all wives now need to wear pink and all husbands need to wear blue. Let's mm. go stereotypical. <laughs> um, let's say you don't like pink. You know, it doesn't match your color <laughs> and you want to leave. Your only option to not comply would be to get divorced. Now, let's say uh, in the meantime, just before you manage to get divorced, though, they say, okay, people are starting to get divorced because they don't want to wear pink and blue. Let's just ban divorce. Well, you know, we'll make divorce, well, maybe even criminal, but let's just say it's not part of the legal options anymore. Once you're married, that's it. You have no way of getting out of the marriage anymore. They have got you into this institution and then stripped your ability to say anything more about it. So it's actually quite a slippery slope. I know that it probably won't happen, but yes. um, it, it, like theoretically, this is a huge issue. And it all ties in with this conflict we find between private law and public law, whereby marriage doesn't quite fit both. You'd think it's a private law matter, two people agreeing to stay together, agreement, the big term, but actually it's public laws, the government endorsing one form of living over others. Um, and we see this also in areas like taxation or maternity provisions, shared parental leave that's not quite as equal as it could be, so you feel, you feel that as much as it's unfair on both men and women, it's more biased towards... What What, what do you think about the divorce laws Laws then? Actually, yes, exactly. Um, uh, I was going to say, how do I go into that best? Yeah. Divorce laws. So... Uh, it's just going to skip. So I think the issue with, we find with the divorce... Um, actually, I'm going to take a step back again yeah. <laughs> for a second. So if we look again at the issue where the government thinks one way of living is the way to go. So they have certain ideals. So say, for example, there is yeah, taxation, maternity provision, shared parental leave. These are all endorsements for one form of living. And it's sort of called relational or relationship favoritism in a way. So people who don't follow this preferred way of life, one man, one woman married, um, are penalized. We can see it in the struggles for same-sex marriage. We can see it in the illegality, actually, of um, bigamy. I mean, it's actually a criminal offense. So you can, you can be married on paper and commit adultery. The worst thing that can happen to you is get divorced. <laughs> but you commit adultery as much as you want as long as no one pursues it but if you marry more than one person you can go to prison for a long time 
So there are, there are contradictions, and that brings me to the issue of divorce, because again, marriage is what people want. It is the one ideal. It's the socially preferred way of life over all others, regardless of their culture or background or biology or orientations. You just want, you know, you want a man and a woman. That's that's the natural. Uh, you can't see the inverted commas I'm making, but that's the natural, perceived, correct way to live. Hmm. What comes from this, of course, is again historically, divorce sort of unthinkable. But if it occurred, there were protections that needed to be put in place, especially before women could equally work in the labor market. This is no longer the case, though, and we're seeing the system change. But people's perceptions are not changing. So a common perception surrounding divorce is that wives generally take their husbands to the cleaners. So essentially, they think that the wives will take go to court and get all the money. However, and there are several studies, but I'm going to mention one particular one from uh, Professor Stephen Jenkins, who is the director of the Institute for Social and Economic Research. So he carried out a survey. And he combined data from 14 British household panels that were surveyed from 1991 and 2004, as well as five European surveys that looked at similar situations. And he found out that,、um, yeah, the per capita income of divorced people were. In reality, disproportionately negatively affecting women. So essentially, the effects of divorce upon income are so marked that they are enough to haul men out of property,、uh, poverty, actually, while plunging women into it. So the incomes of ex-husbands, according to the study, rose by 25% immediately after the split, but women saw a sharp fall in their finances. Which never reached, or very rarely reached, their pre-divorce levels. So the reality is opposite. The reality is completely the opposite. So I think something like I think it was almost thirty percent of women ended up living in poverty as a result, which was three times the rate of men, and only thirty-one percent received maintenance payments from their ex-husbands for their children. So you can see exactly. You can see that there's this trust. People go into marriage. It's what's promoted on the TV. It's what people see. You know, it's the romantic right thing to do. Children need to have parents who are married for some reason. It's supposed to benefit them. So everyone thinks it's the best thing. The law will clearly protect me because this is what we're meant to do. Only later to find out the harsh realities. So you have the gendered stereotypes where again women often. Have either the dual burden, more so than men, of juggling childcare and work, or take a step back and generally, of course, earn less because let's face it, the gender wage gap is real.、Um, only to then sacrifice their future prospects because it makes more sense with the the, the higher wage of the family unit, usually being the husbands, to be promoted more. So you know, husband gets a job abroad, elsewhere. Oh, there he'll be earning so much more. It makes more sense to follow his career rather than mine, say from a wife's perspective. And then we've, we're seeing numbers rising of women who trusted these relationships, end up divorced, and end up in poverty. 
And on the other side too, we see a lot of women who can't afford to get divorced for exactly these reasons. They can choose between staying maybe in a relationship that's abusive, that is not generating any happiness. But the downside, if you leave, you're breaking norms, you're not doing the right thing because you're not meant to be divorced. Children need parents who are married. And again, what's the alternative? Poverty. Poverty, judgment, humiliation potentially, ostracism from families in some cases when you bring cultural elements in as well. Um, it's a complicated matter. It is. It is. And it's much more than just getting divorced. It's it's like bringing it's 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 a big impact on anyone's life. It's it's too much. Exactly. And again, as I I can't stress enough, a big issue is just that it's regulated by someone else who's saying this is how you're meant to live so i'm not i'm not advocating here at all for poly um, for polygamy or any other form of relationships i'm not um advocating against it either i'm saying basically people should do what is right for them and a government shouldn't dictate what someone's private life should look like which again is actually what Article 8 of the Conventional, on the European Convention of Human Rights states that there should be no interference in one's private and family life. Which is a contradiction. Which is a contradiction. So marriage itself, actually, it contradicts some of the most fundamental constitutional principles of the, the state we live in. It contradicts the separation of religion and state. It contradicts the um, freedom of contract elements, it contradicts Article 8 provisions, There's, there is so many internal contradictions that don't fit and the only reason I can see why it's still so favorable and pushed and encouraged is the social elements, the context, the romantic view that this is way life should be. True. I think it really sums it up how historically you know, we were all isolated and then greed came in and then societal norms came in and we started to have some structure. But Elysia, isn't it true that when we develop something, no matter how good or how bad, there will be pros and cons, wouldn't there? Of course, of course. So I am, as I was saying that uh, originally the, the way we had marriage arranged was a pro. It came from a from a, a notion to protect all family members, to ensure that everyone had enough to survive, be provided for, regardless of the circumstances. However, as I said at the beginning, the problem is that in its current shape, it's just no longer living up to the needs of society. But we can see, at the same time, there is a reduction of marriages. So over the past few decades, marriages have rapidly decreased um, and they actually seem artificially high these days because many of the marriages we see in the statistics are people who have been married several times. So the number of people who decide not to get married is rapidly increasing and that's already demonstrating that there's not really a need for it. Yeah. Um, that people are still actively choosing to still stay together people are moving in together they're living together they're you know it's not like monogamous relationships are outdated um 
they're just changing their shape slowly and it's just for the law and maybe politics society to start to move with the times and adjust to the realities we've seen today yeah i totally agree with it uh alicia it is it was lovely to have you on the podcast and have an historical perspective especially with modern times and how things are but just to sum it up how, how if you were to make a law tomorrow if you were the say say the the queen or the king of the world and you have the right to change what changes would you bring to married life or would you want people to get married doesn't doesn't it provide security and a sense of responsibility for some people uh, what what is it what what would you change um so i think the big change i would make was that i would make marriage very clearly a private matter i'm not saying they couldn't enter into marriage but i think it has to be dealt with entirely under private law um yeah people need to make their own terms and conditions of the relationship they espouse and uh yeah for the government essentially to take a step back and to let people live lives as they please um i'm not saying that this would be ideal especially there could be relationships where social dominance might impact it and there might have might need to be certain safeguards in the law to protect from these sort of issues although usually contract law has its own mechanisms um when there are imbalances of power but yeah ultimately i think it it shouldn't be a public matter marriage is private and should be a private decision and regulated as such